Okay, as you saw in the overview for this um, chapter on love and relationships, um, I believe your textbook covers three different theories of love, and I'm going to skip one of those because I don't like it. I think it's dumb. But anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, look at ones that actually have some research behind them and stuff like that. But um, uh, the first of these three theories of love, well, <laughs> the first of our two theories of love, uh, relates love to attachment. Um, now, in order to explain this, um, I need to remind you of some things that you probably learned at some point in general psychology, and you definitely learned if you took or, uh, developmental psychology, which I know some of you did, uh, and that's about attachment in infancy. Now, if you remember, attachment has to do with the um, uh, close feelings of trust uh, that a child an infant develops for their primary caregiver. And we usually think of attachment as developing in humans, you know, within the first year, year and a half or so, right? Such that um, uh, by about a year and a half old, we can put kids into the strange situation, uh, Mary Ainsworth, you remember that? Uh, strange situation where we can look at different styles of attachment. So the thing about it is that attachment of a child to their primary caregiver isn't something that happens automatically reflexively, uh, like it does in some animals. In humans, it happens over some time. Uh, and, um, and what that results in is a, a few different attachment styles that are identifiable, again, uh, toward the end of um, the infancy stage of development, uh, you know, a year and a half, maybe two years old. And um, Mary Ainsworth was the first to identify these, um, and um, and people started to realize. Actually, Ainsworth started to realize that um, that some things about attachment style in infancy were predictive of later outcomes, even in uh, for those same children uh, in adolescence and even into young adulthood or early adulthood, um, particularly in um, relationship styles. Okay, so if you remember, the um, attachment styles uh, have to do with uh, um, children being able to basically learn two important things from their early relationship with their primary caregiver. And one of them is um, how much they can trust other people. Um, so developing a sense of, can I rely on other people to do what they're going to say, to come back when they say they're going to come back, um, you know, to help me out if I need any help. And then the second is, how much can I rely on myself? Um, uh, so what can I do for myself? Uh, can I take care of myself? Can I rely on myself? Um, am I okay, in a sense, right? So we learn about trust of other people and also some self-reliance. And these uh, and differences in these um, describe, uh, the, well, the three kind of classic um, uh, different attachment styles of secure attachment, anxious, ambivalent, or avoidant attachment. And um, the good news is that uh, estimates of um, children in the United States um, put it at about 80% of kids develop secure attachment styles to their primary caregiver early on, uh, again, by the age of two. That's good because that one's predictive of better outcomes in the long term. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, kids can also develop anxious, ambivalent, or avoidant kinds of attachment um, that are predictive of problems later on, particularly into uh, young adult relationships. 
Um, now, uh, and what that um, what that shows here, if you go to uh, slide number twelve, uh, it lays out kind of a description of the attachment style in adults. Uh, notice that this is correlational. Essentially, it's saying that if we can know something about the style of attachment that the child shows at about the age of two, we can make some predictions about the kinds of relationships that they're going to have love relationships by young adulthood. This is correlational, so it's predictive. It's not necessarily cause and effect. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, um, a healthy, secure relationship in childhood means that you're always going to have healthy relationships or problematic relationships in childhood. It's going to doom you to always having unhealthy relationships. Um, however, it does, um, it does sort of uh, point to the idea that what we learn in those first attachment relationships about ourselves and other people are very important things that they're foundational uh, that build on our ability the, uh, to um, uh, get along with other people all right so that you see by um, adult attachment styles for a securely attached person by young adulthood you know this description uh, I find it relatively easy to get close to others and I'm comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me I don't often worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. Okay, so notice there we've got um, we've got those two kind of themes of being okay with trusting other people, being okay with trusting myself. Avoidant personality, uh, I'm sorry, attachment style in uh, young adulthood. I'm somewhat uncomfortable being close to others. I find it difficult to trust them, difficult to allow myself to depend on them. I'm nervous when anyone gets too close, and I often and often love partners who want me to feel more intimate than I feel comfortable being. So this person who's who may get into relationships, they're not completely avoidant of relationships, but but when um when relationships get to be too emotionally intimate or involve some risk or vulnerability, this person gets really uncomfortable, right? And um they're gonna tend to either clam up or um leave the relationship, right? Um, uh, so this seems to reflect um, that this person has had difficulty with learning to be able to trust other people, right? Um, uh, can I rely on other people or not? Are they are they gonna uh, are they gonna hurt me? Are they gonna um, uh, help me out? The last one, anxious ambivalent. <clears throat> Um, I find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I often worry that my partner doesn't really love me or won't want to stay with me. I want to merge completely with another person. <laughs> and this desire sometimes scares people away. Um, here, this person is liable to get into love relationships very quickly, very hot and heavily, very easily, um, very too deeply, too quickly, in a sense, and put themselves at risk. And then the other person is liable to feel uncomfortable with that and back off, right? Um, this is um, this might be a person who uh, had difficulty with learning to rely on themselves uh, early on. Now that doesn't mean that they can never learn that, um, but um, but it does say that um, you know those are important things that we learn in our uh, in some of our first uh, relationships. If we go on to um, uh, Sternberg's triangular theory of love, I kind of like Sternberg's theory. It's kind of nifty um, because um, because essentially it uh, breaks down um, uh, different kinds of love into three major components. And as you mix and match these three different components, you come up with several different well types of love, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
So, um, so the three components uh, in Sternberg's triangular theory are intimacy, passion, and commitment, or uh, decision, or commitment. I've always seen it as commitment, but I guess uh, it may also be called decision. Um, uh, essentially, um, uh, intimacy uh, has to do with um, feeling emotionally close to people, uh, trusting people, feeling like you can open yourself up to them, um, and, uh, you know, uh, emotionally close. Uh, passion is more of the, um, largely more of the uh, physical component, where a longing or wanting to be with a person, kind of like that romantic love. And then decision and commitment is just that. They're deciding that, yes, I want to be with this person or not. Um, notice that this is the um, part that I was talking about before, where, where love being an act of the will, in a sense, of deciding whether or not you're going to be in this relationship. So if we go to um, put them all together graphically in slide 14, um, uh, what you see is that um, Sternberg says that if you've got a love relationship where all three of these things are in place, You've got intimacy, you've got passion, you've got commitment, then you've got what he calls consummate love. Consummate love, uh, there would be essentially the ideal for long-term relationships, where we'd want to have uh, components of all of those. But he said that we can have other kinds of relationships that, um, that involve different combinations of these. And each one is a thing, in a sense, uh, so that um, on the... Um, uh, um, on the uh, vertexes, on the points of the triangle, we see where there's only one aspect. And on the um, legs of the triangle, we see where there's a combination of two things, uh, any, you know, any different, any two different ones. So, for example, um, uh, if we've got intimacy alone, but no commitment um, and uh, no passion, we just like people. You know, that might be... Um, uh, not necessarily our close friends, not necessarily people we expect to see again, um, but uh, acquaintances maybe, right? Um, at another point, if we have infatuate, if we have passion alone with nothing else, then we have infatuation, where somebody's liable to have, you know, passionate feelings, but not really desire intimacy with the person, and not necessarily de uh, desire uh, commitment with the person, right? Um, on uh, the uh, on the other bottom corner. Uh, vertex, we've got empty love, where there is essentially a decision, a commitment to love, but then there's no feelings to go with it, in a sense, that um, that somebody has essentially decided, yes, I'm going to love this person, but they don't really feel it, right? They don't feel the passion, they don't feel the intimacy. Um, so that may be uh, what happens sometimes in arranged relationships, arranged marriages, although a lot of times in arranged marriages, people do develop feelings um, uh, afterwards, after the fact, after they've decided decided on love. Um, and then we get to uh, combinations of two things. So like uh, companionate love would be a combination of intimacy and commitment. So this would probably be for, you know, your f close friends and your family members. Um, you trust them, you feel emotionally close to them, you care about them, and you have commitment to them. You know that you are going to see them again and that this is a relationship that's going to continue into the future. Um, uh, romantic love uh, is a combination of intimacy and passion uh, to where, um, uh, but not necessarily commitment, right? Um, so this could be a hot and heavy kind of uh, affair or um, a love relationship that, um, that you don't necessarily expect to last, um, uh, where there's intimacy and passion, 
um, but not any kind of commitment in the relationship. Um, the last one at the bottom, fatuous love, is a little bit harder to explain, but it's more like um, it's more like when somebody uh, it's, so it's passion and commitment, but with no intimacy. So um, so you have this longing for this person, this missing this person, but you don't actually have uh, um, uh, emotional intimacy with the person, um, and you may have it for a long time. So this is liable to be like having a really strong crush on somebody for a long time or even possibly stalking somebody, right? Where it's, um, uh, where you swear you're in love with them, but you don't actually even know them, <laughs> um, right? Uh, so that's one of those kinds of loves there, fatuous. But again, um, at the center of the triangle, uh, combining all three components, what we might think of as the ideal for long-term relationships, consummate love. Um, uh, Sternberg's got um, got a model, as I sort of mentioned before, of how these things change over time in relationships. Um, um, but I don't know that there's necessarily any data on that, um, you know, as far as how people would describe relationships. My sense is that things kind of come and go, not necessarily peaking of passion and then declining for good. Uh, I don't think it's that way, but... Um, let's see, um, the next thing is jealousy. Now, the term jealousy or jealous, um, uh, people today use it much more broadly than uh, it uh, was originally used. Um, you know, um, um, people will say that, you know, like if somebody else has something that you want, that you're jealous of them. That's not jealousy, that's envy, right? If you envy somebody for their possessions. Um, jealousy is more like a desire to have... Um, uh, somebody's exclusive in a relationship so that, um, you know, you get their full loyalty in a sense. And, um, and so if their loyalty is, uh, taken by somebody else, then you're jealous of that, right? So this is more like cheating in relationships, uh, or, um, infidelities in relationships. Um, you know, not just desiring what somebody else has had, right? But expecting or uh, desiring somebody's loyalty. Um, so when um, when people value relationships, particularly close relationships, um, they will uh, sometimes feel jealous uh, um, of other people and other people's possible um, desires on their loved one, um, or uh, that didn't come out right, um, other people's uh, intentions uh, to take their loved one away from them or something like that. Um, we generally don't feel very jealous about friendship relationships. We kind of do sometimes, you know, if uh, somebody says that your best friend is their best friend, you're likely like, yeah, sure, no, they're my best friend. But, um, but we tend to be much more jealous when it comes to um, love relationships and sexual relationships and passionate relationships. Right? Um, and um, uh, jealousy can be a dangerous thing. Uh, um, people can um, people can become very angry when they uh, uh, perceive that threat of uh, to their relationship. Um, and you know people can get angry and they can get violent and um, uh, stuff like that. There's actually some cases of folks who have essentially delusional beliefs of jealousy where they believe that their partner is cheating on them when they're patently not. <laughs> um, but the person is liable to get very um, angry and violent as a result. Um, 
let's see. Um, this research, this research on um, at the bottom of that slide, uh, men are more sec jealous of sexual infidelity, women more jealous of emotional infidelity. I don't know that um, that may be um, that may be one of those generalizations. Um, people try to talk about differences between men and women, um, and and often you lose a lot of the similarities in that, and maybe that's a difference in averages or something like that. But um, uh, however, this does come down to relationship issues with regard to, you know, what people are liable to uh, consider to be cheating or a threat to relationship. You know, is it okay for you to flirt with somebody outside of the relationship, even if you don't have any intentions with that person? Um, is it okay? You know, what kind of things are okay and what kind of things are perceived as threats uh, to the relationship. And so that certainly does come up in relationships that um, that people, people in relationships, I don't care if it's men and men or women and women or men and women, but people tend to think of uh, relationships a bit differently sometimes, right? And, um, and is this a, uh, is this something you're allowed to do in a relationship or not, right? Um, so those are things that often come up in, um, in couples therapy, um, where somebody's liable to think that what they did was no big deal, and their other person thinks it's a very big deal, right? And um, uh, so, um, so what that comes down to a lot of times is that people sort of assume that they know what's okay and what's not, but we do think about those things in different ways. Uh, if we get to um, slide number um, sixteen. Um, on maintaining a relationship. Actually, uh, like I said, I think your book does a real short set, seg uh, segment here on initiating relationships. What starts relationships? And this is a part that fascinates me. There, and there's a lot of research on it, a lot of social psychology research on what brings people together. What do people look for? What do people find attractive in particular other people um, that um, uh, tends to initiate relationships? Now, one of the important things here is that um, the things that um, uh, often initiate relationships aren't necessarily the things that maintain relationships. So, um, so that may be why a lot of times you know we're liable to start relationships or know somebody a little bit and then it's like no that's not it that's not for me right um because there's different things going on different factors that we're going to um be paying attention to um let's see um there's a good deal of relationship research on this of course um uh proximity uh closeness physical closeness just being in proximity to people uh we're more likely to engage in relationships with them we tend to like people more when we've seen them more um, there's a uh there's an interesting study that um that they did uh in college classrooms where they had this this young woman go to different college classes um and just pretend like she was a student essentially and uh but she went to different classes for different amounts of time and i think the time periods where she attended one class for 6 weeks one for 3 weeks and another class not at all um and when she went to the class she didn't interact with anybody she sat up front so people saw her but she didn't interact with anybody um but there was a clear relationship that um that students other students in the classes the more they had seen her you know, six weeks, three weeks, or none, the more they rated her as um, attractive and the more that they liked her, right? Just from familiarity, right? Um, uh, or being around them a lot. 
Um, <clears throat> uh, we tend to be attracted to people because of similarities. People will sometimes say that opposites attract, but mm, opposites make us interesting. I'll be honest. I, I, I think that's definitely true. Um, but, um, but similarities are what draw us together. Um, there's this idea of um, consensual validation, which is the idea that when we see our own ideas and values and attitudes in another person, that makes us feel better about ourselves because they agree with us, right? Consensual validation. Um, and so, you know, we tend to think more highly of people that we think are similar to us in some way. People will use this sometimes, you know, as a persuasive technique. They'll try to get you to see how they're similar to you. I'm just a regular guy and, you know, vote for me for this um, <laughs> this uh, political office, right? Um, and um, you know, so they want to get their picture taken uh, wearing a blue denim shirt and chugging a beer or something like that, right? <laughs> but um, uh, <laughs> um, but similarities do tend to bring people together. Now, as I said, though, um, differences in people, I think, is a lot of time where where things are interesting because relationships. Um, are going to grow when there are differences uh, in people. What can we learn from one another? You know, oh, you've never had um, uh, Bengali food? Well, let me cook some Bengali food for you. And, um, you know, we can share this new experience, right? And so that's, uh, that's a difference, but it, it can bring us together, right? Still, overall, it's mostly similarities that um, drive people together. Physical attractiveness. <laughs> we tend to be attracted to people who are physically attractive. Duh. Um, that's basically a circular statement, right? That's basically what that means. But, um, but why? Why do we care about um, physical attractiveness? Um, there's, um, there's some really interesting stuff on this that, um, that essentially many of the characteristics that we associate with physical attractiveness may actually be telling us something about the person's overall health, reproductive capability, or even some genetic kind of characteristics. Um, uh, so that, um, you know, there may be reasons we'd be drawn to those people, at least evolutionarily. Um, however, uh, a lot of those kinds of evolutionary pressures, even though we may still feel them as instinctual, they may not be as important anymore. Um, you know, um, women tend to be attracted to men who are physically larger than them. Well, that may be an evolutionary thing, but is it necessary anymore? Um, does a woman need a man who's bigger than her physically to protect her? Or and she doesn't, right? Um, and yet, um, and yet, um, a lot of females are attracted to males who are bigger, and that's something they think is important. I could give you a lot of examples like that. That um, that essentially, while people say they're attracted to people for one reason, it may actually be something else, and it may be something else that's well biologically outdated, right? Um, yeah, but anyway, um, uh, okay, uh, enough about um, attractiveness. There's plenty more. Um, maintaining relationships. Um, uh, notice that, um, that some of this uh, under maintaining relationship is going to reflect um, some of that, um, uh, um, uh, I want to say consummate, no, companionate love, some of that companionate love of, um, of sharing and intimacy um, and being uh, with that person. Um, and um, needing to adapt to change, that um, people change. Um, and uh, in order to maintain a relationship over time, we've got to kind of roll with some of that change. Um, and we've got to go into a relationship expecting that there's going to be some of that change, right? Um, 
and figure ways to um, uh, to adapt together. Um, the decline of passion. Um, <clears throat> passion tends to decline in relationships. It tends to um, peak early on and tends to decline. At least that's what people say. Um, a few things going on here. Um, one of them is habituation. If you remember, a lot of um, a lot of the um, uh, sexual stimuli uh, were tuned to um, novelty uh, as humans a lot of times for new things. We're interested in new and different things, um, and that. That's sort of the way our brain almost tends to be wired. And there's a process called habituation where if things stay the same, well, we tend to sort of tune that out or not pay attention to it as much or not even think it's as important. We tend to get used to stuff. We tend to get comfortable with stuff. Um, and so um, uh, so this is, you know, one possible explanation for uh, decline of passion, that there's less of that um, newness. Uh, also, passion involves um, that um, uh, passion involves risk, right? <clears throat> um, uh, you know, there's early in a relationship, there's these senses of, you know, uh, do they feel this way about me? Where is this going? Uh, when am I going to see him again? Are we going to be together? Are we going to be sexual? Whatever. And all these sort of um, uh, heightened feelings, there's risk involved there. And, um, and that's exciting. To some extent, right? It can be scary. It can be dangerous, but it's also exciting. And um, and once you've been in a relationship for a while, well, some of that risk starts to go away, right? You start to not have to worry about uh, some of those things. That's actually um, what's happening as some of that companion and love increases, right? Um, and so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but um, uh, and so the typical way of thinking about this is that as passion declines then either the relationship's going to end or um, companionate love is going to be growing um, and that's going to be able to maintain um, uh, the relationship. You know, so um, so you see this sometimes when people break up in relationships and it's like, I fell out of love with that person, right? Um, well, that may be that yeah, there was that decline of passion and there was no companionate, no real companionate love to maintain things afterwards, right? Um, growing together, growing apart, um, seeing your partner as your best friend, shared pleasurable activities, probably nothing about this surprises you. Um, when we break up with people, that can be hard. Um, <clears throat> um, uh, I'm not going to talk too much about breaking up. Um, we, remember that um, in relationships, we tended to see a person as ideal. Uh, and so when that person rejects us or, or something, we tend to uh, take that really hard. Um, breaking up is especially difficult um, in some of our first times of experiencing breaking up because essentially, you know, we've put ourselves out there, we've taken some risks, we've taken some vulnerabilities, and that we've made ourselves vulnerable. And there can be, oops, real quick, he's leaving. <laughs> My dog's tired of hearing me. Um, let's see. Um, We've made ourselves vulnerable, and now we're paying the price for it in a sense. You know that that that, um, that we took the risk and it backfired, uh, and so that can make people really doubt themselves. That can make people really have um, uh, difficulty with um, the possibility of getting into new relationships. Right? Um, 
uh, and then sometimes too, there's uh, there's the um, dealing with the ex-partner, if that's somebody who um, you go to school with or you work with or you had kids with or something like that, um, then you're liable to have to continue to um, deal with that person in a different kind of relationship. Okay, I'm going to um, end there. Uh, I'll um, I'll be recording stuff soon on the next chapter, which is the last chapter on uh, development um, across the lifespan, which essentially puts a lot of our topics that we've looked at in this course um, into kind of a chronological developmental order. Right? So it makes a nice review. Okay, let me get my bongo drums. Where are they again? Can't find them. Oh, here they are.